hello. Thank you all so much for being here. Yeah. Um, we're excited. This is our first live <laughs> show as a, as a team. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I am Brandon Tinsley. I'm an associate editor at New America and a contributing writer at Pacific Standard Magazine. And I'm still coming off the high of having gone to my very first drag brunch a few weeks ago. Brandon. You're gay now. I love this like drag journey that you're on. <laughs> it's been amazing. Yeah. yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Uh, I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate. And I would like to thank Taylor Swift, mm. our straight ally VIP of the month, for finally giving me the permission to love who I love. Because love is love. love is, is love is love. Love is love. Is love. Truly. Uh, and I'm Brian Lauder, the editor of Outward, and I have been editing so much Pride content this month that I think I might have overdosed and become straight. Uh, so I'm hoping that tonight y'all y'all can help fix that, because I think that would be really sad. I don't think you have to worry about that. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, so we are so thrilled tonight to be here at Joe's Pub. This is a venue with a rich legacy of supporting queer artists and community charity events like Night of a Thousand Judies, which I was just at about a month ago. And I cannot think of a better place for us to be on the eve of the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. So speaking of legacies, conveniently, that is the theme of our show. Earlier this month, Outward published a special package about legacies, which you should all go read. And tonight, we're going to continue that conversation among ourselves and with our special guests. First, we're going to have a special World Pride-sized edition of Pride and Provocations, which is this segment in which we talk about something we're either proud of or that provokes us, like the art in Bette Porter's infamous Provocations show in The L Word. Then we're going to chat with the author Alexander Chi about the legacies of queer activism and thought that inform his writing. After that, we've got Mei Hong and Garcia from Tales of the City to join us to discuss the experience of being awesome <laughs> on a show and a, and a story that has a beloved legacy of its own. And finally, we're going to invite you all in the last segment to join us in Pride and Provocations. And so you will present us with something you've observed this Pride season, and we will help you decide whether you should be provoked or proud of it. So be thinking about that as you uh, Or if are something watching. happens during this show. During this show, that yeah. yeah. I hope, you. hope on the spot. Yeah, yeah. Something, something provoking <laughs> may happen. Uh, that would be great. So with that, Brandon, let's get started. Yeah, so as Brian said, welcome to Pride and Provocations. So this iteration is a Pride and Stonewall-themed one. So we'll talk about pieces of conversation and culture um, that either bring us queer joy or queer Years. So, without further ado, Christina, how are you feeling this month? <laughs> I'm feeling proud. I have a pride this month. So, over the past couple years, some of you might have noticed, there's been a boom in these queer history Instagram accounts. People are pulling images that are in less accessible, sometimes cloistered spaces like archives or special collections, and putting them in the most accessible place, which is our social media feeds. A lot of what the queer history Instagram accounts like history and LGBT history do are resurface images from protests and pride celebrations and political demonstrations. But the ones that really get me are the ones of queer people hanging out with their friends and their lovers just being themselves in a decade where 
we don't usually see pictures of queer people being queer for a lot of reasons. For part of it, you know, it's just that a lot of people weren't comfortable documenting the queer parts of their lives, mm -hmm. but also cameras and film processing were really expensive and inaccessible to a lot of people. So every time I see a picture like this, I get a little chill because it feels like it could be me or our friends. And, and these are people from, you know, mostly in the 20th century. It reminds me that we were there, we're here, like we've been everywhere, even when it's not fully documented. And, and people like us, queer people, have been seeking out these bonds of kinship since the beginning of time. And I love to see these uh, slices of history mingling in my Instagram feed with very similar pictures of my own queer friends and hot lesbians who I follow. <laughs> yeah, cheers to that, for sure. Yeah, I feel like you know, having done some archival research around queer stuff, there's so much stuff like in boxes and libraries and things. Mm -hmm. And these, you wrote so beautifully about this, these accounts are really bringing that stuff out for and, people that haven't, you know, would not otherwise get to see it. Right. And they're not people who aren't even necessarily identified, but certainly yeah. not like heroes of the movement. So they're not the kinds of images that would normally find their way into like a queer history book or class or something. Because like, what's the historical value in these pictures? But they're so, so precious to me. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. What do you guys have? So I often have a pride, and I feel like I always start it with like, surprisingly, I have a pride. Um, <laughs> that is that. true again this time. Um, so my pride is from a group called Muna. They are a queer identifying pop trio from Los Angeles. Um, and I think it's pretty fair to say that they have been taking the indie world by storm over the past several years. In particular, one of their songs, it was actually their first single, called I Know a Place. So if we could play a clip. I knew when you told me you don't want to go home tonight. And you tried to just shrug it off when I asked why. Somebody hurt you. Somebody hurt you. But you're here by my side. And I knew. Cause I can recall when... I actually just want to keep listening to that. It's so cute. <laughs> That's you encapsulated. I can't believe I never heard it until you told us about it. So yeah, yeah. please Since educate everybody. 2016, 2017. And so what I love about that song is really twofold. One thing about it is it just really is a sort of love letter to the LGBTQ community. Um, and it's really grounded in queer history and queer place. I have a, a little quote from the lead vocalist, uh, Katie Gavin who described the group's thinking behind the song, and it kind of went through different um, influences and iterations, partly because it was they started writing it in 2015, and then polls happened in 2016, and that also sort of changed the context of the song. Mm. So she said, at least 21 transgender women were murdered in 2015. A disproportionate percent of our country's homeless youth were, and are, LGBTQ adolescents, forced to reckon with the impossible task of staying healthy and safe without a home or proper health care. We knew that if we were to make a song that truly spoke to the American LGBTQ community in 2015, it would need to address both victory and violence. With I Know A Place, we chose to imagine a place where none of us would need to be afraid. In honor of pride and the rich LGBTQ history of turning bars and ballrooms into safe havens, the space we imagined was a dance club. Mm. And so you easily hear that in the lyrics, um, especially in the sort of pre-chorus, in the actual chorus. Um, they sang, I can tell when you get nervous, you think being yourself means being unworthy, and it's hard to love with the heart that's hurting, but if you want to go out dancing, I know a place, I know a place we can go where everyone's going to lay down their weapons. Um, and so that's, you know, very easy and straightforward, but it's one thing that I just really love about it, is um, it's, it's very 
open and honest about what it's offering people. It's offering queer people in particular the space to imagine. But then another thing that I love about it is the way that the song has existed in queer culture um, and in the culture at large. It's uh, been embraced. It's essentially become a sort of queer anthem mm. uh, over the past couple of years. Um, so you could hear it in the movie Alex Strangelove, which is a gay coming of age film. You can hear it in Tales of the City. <laughs> Fuck. Um, um, but it's something that's really been embraced by, and I, I think there's just power in, you know, I love my gay icons, as everyone knows. Um, you know, I love Carly Jepsen, I love my Beyonce, but I think there's power in having queer artists in particular uh, sort of be the ones who um, are the face of these aspects of queer culture. So that's given me a lot of pride over the past month. It's really beautiful. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's beautiful. Um, I love this idea too of, of like dance clubs still being mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. a home for us. I feel like I feel like there's some forces in the culture that like want that to not be true anymore or like totally. push back against that a little mm-hmm. bit. And like they certainly are for me. And I know I mean you, Christina, throw a tea dance. Yeah, I do throw a tea dance. Legendary tea dance in uh, DC. Uh, and so you know I think I just think those spaces are so crucial. And I'm glad to hear that this group is like. Honoring that. Honoring that. Yeah, it makes me feel positive about the youths. I don't know, are they youths? I can't tell anymore. <laughs> but young. They met when they were at USC, I think, so in college. So it still has that sort of uh, uh, that attachment to uh, maybe younger people learning about like queer theory. And if you actually sort of parse the lyrics, um, mm-hmm. it's very sort of cerebral. Um, but then they sort of weave it into these uh, pop tunes, which is phenomenal. But... Brandon Bate. Basically, <laughs> it's like tell me that and I'll like instantly give you all my money. But Brian, what do you have for us? Well, I guess I will be the one to be provoked. <laughs> In fact, I have a bit of a rant uh, oh, if we're yes. ready for that. I want to talk tonight about the Stonewall police, but not the police that were at Stonewall. The people in the community now who want to police how we relate to Stonewall. Shit. Get into that switch. <laughs> um, so. The idea that Judy Garland's funeral, the day, we were debating like the timing, like the 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 morning of before the day, yeah, yeah, like, like when it, it's like two a.m. It's hard to know, yeah. But anyway, it happened like right before. Whether or not it had anything to do with the sort of energies that led to the riot, and some people believe this. There are other people who I will not name who vehemently hate this idea and call you sort of horrible for even thinking it, and so. I would like to say here on the stage that I'm a Judy truther. Um, I, I, I not, which is not to say that I think the funeral or her death was the only thing that inspired Stonewall. Obviously, there were movements throughout the 60s that ins- for, for liberation throughout the 60s that inspired it. Many, many things, police brutality, all kinds of stuff. But I do think that it is, was part of it for some people. And this quote which uh, Christina actually obtained this week for a piece that we ran, I think is evidence of that. Uh, This guy was certainly thinking about it. I think that proving the connection isn't really my point. What I wanna say is that believing in the Judy theory for me speaks to like the underestimated power of gay culture to like actually make change in the world to be political. So sassiness trained us to be cutting. Diva worship, like uh, figures like Garland, inspired us to be strong. Camp showed us how to wrench stuff from, the, from a culture that hated us and use it for ourselves. Um, humor taught us to take on confrontation with a wicked grin. All of these things were on display at Stonewall. When I think about Stonewall, I like thinking about that, and that's how I choose to relate to it. 
And sort of the larger message here is that Stonewall is a bit of a historical cipher. It can mean, it can hold many meanings for different groups of people. And that is legitimate and we should embrace all of those and no one has the right answer. So let's stop arguing and telling each other how to feel about Stonewall. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It doesn't even take a sort of leap in imagination to think about the, the camp that happened at Stonewall. I mean, you hear a lot of accounts about the protesters who formed the sort of rocket style kick mm-hmm. lines. Um, Stonewall girls, taunt, yeah. Yeah, to taunt the police. That's one of the things that's so profound about queer history, queer culture, and queer community is that you often have had to learn how to juggle sometimes dueling emotions um, during, you know, in one experience. And just to plug another great slate piece from this week, we had our history writer, Rebecca Onion, wrote about how looking at primary sources from literally, like, I mean, you saw this, this is a newsletter from July, um, literally like in the days and weeks after people were already debating what Stonewall meant, mm-hmm. right? Like it was never uh, a settled thing. There were multiple claims on who did what, what happened first, like all of that stuff was going on and we've continued it to today. And I think that fractiousness is actually fine like that's a good thing and so i hope we can continue that i hope we would not police each other because you know the police were the problem there (laughs) yeah Yeah. i loved reading about that and and in some of the history instagrams that i was doing research on for my piece too i noticed that like i love when historians can elevate the sort of clashes that occurred back when because they're happening now. And I think a lot of people will say like, oh, you're tearing each other apart. Mm -hmm. We all have to unite. But actually, those kinds of conversations, fights, if you want to call them fights, are what generate progress in a movement. We're all still figuring it out. Nobody was sure like where the movement was going or what tactics were best back then. But we don't know that now. None of those fights (laughs) are over. and, And I think that's that's great. And I think this pride season, as provoked as we are by that, <laughs> we can also be proud of that, too, that we yeah. could give each other space to have different opinions about that kind of stuff. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC. Um, so speaking of all that beautiful, rich, <laughs> and contentious history and activism, Brian, what's next on the show? Well, we're going to have our first guest on stage as what's next. Our first guest is the best-selling author of the novels Edinburgh, The Queen of the Night, and the essay collection How to Write an Autobiographical Novel, which is an essay collection I just want to mention personally that's kind of serving as therapy for me while I try to finish one, so like this is a big deal. <laughs> He's a contributing editor of The New Republic, editor-at-large at VQR, is a associate professor of English and creative writing at Dartmouth. He's won a lot of fancy awards. It would be tacky to list them all. <laughs> so I'm just going to bring him up. Please welcome to the stage, Alexander Chi. Welcome. Welcome, welcome. Hi. How's it going? I love my pink mic. <laughs> it matches your shirt. It's like it's the right hue. I think it's good. nicely contrasting. Yes. Yeah. So thank you for being here. Yeah, you traveled far to be here. Yeah. From New Hampshire, right? 
Uh, technically from the Catskills. Still far. I'm still going <laughs> to give you credit for traveling. You know, you've written a lot in the past couple, like, months or two about Stonewall. And so we thought we would start there. You wrote that you've sort of been relearning the story of the riots and learning things about it that you didn't really comprehend or sort of totally appreciate before. So we thought a good place to start would be, like, how did this process of sort of revisiting it change the way you think about your place in queer history and, and how you understood it? The chief realization for me during this period has been how much more I belonged than I thought I did to this movement in this community. So a lot of the alienation that I felt back then, I can see now, was um, partly constructed by a mix of, let's just say, the iconography of the community at the time. And then just the, the sort of the gaps in the education because when you come out, there's no systemic process. Yeah. There's no series of badges. <laughs> um, Maybe there should no, be. There's Level no, ups. Like, yeah. There's no coaches. There's yeah. no, like, none of that. You have to, if you want to get educated, you have to go get educated yourself. And so there's a lot of people who do, and there's a lot of people who don't. When I was writing that article, I did a quick Twitter poll to see, like, did people know why Pride was celebrated at the end of June? Mm-hmm. Uh, about 50% of the respondents did not know. Wow. So it was just sort of my way of testing a theory about like how much we're sort of enacting, in some ways, something that we don't even know what it is for a lot of us. I'm thinking about like these kids I saw about 10 years ago on an Amtrak train, and one of them was imitating uh, someone from like an 80s sitcom. They're like, what you talking about, Willis? And like, the other person, the other kid was like, what do you, what is that? <laughs> and they were like, what do you mean, what is that? Don't you know? And, and she was like, no. And I just, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and it felt like that, like yeah. this kind of, like half of the gesture was there and half not. So. That's why I'm trying to write about it a little more in a slightly different way, because I think like there's any number of reasons why people don't know these things. And I think that's why it's good that we have this celebration once a year and we talk about it, even argue about it, even have a parade going one way and a march going the other. <laughs> Indeed. You know, like that's come to me to be almost as much the protest of the parade is now almost as much a tradition as the parade. Right. I also read a piece that you wrote in the New Republic in 2015 while you were sort Mm. of waiting for the Supreme Court decision on marriage equality to come down. And you wrote, the pursuit of marriage equality has changed us. You also say you ask your writing students, what are the implications of what you've invented? So what are the implications of this mainstream vision of queer rights that we've invented? So, technically, marriage equality is a victory within a, within a conservative context, right? Even if most conservatives, when I say my husband, whip their head back like this, like, <laughs> um, and I still like doing that to them, like whenever I'm traveling, wherever I am, just like, oh, my husband will be right here. And they're here. like, you mean wife, right? Like, you're the husband. <laughs> I know, it's a particularly good time to, I guess, pull that out. (laughs) (laughs) The reservation is to ask, my husband will be right here. Mm -hmm. Um, 
so there's, you know, there's obviously ways that, that I, you know, as I was writing at the time, like, I'm hoping that we can queer marriage. And I think, I feel like I see that, you know. I think one of the things that I really have come to love about queer liberation over the decades is the way that it's a movement that makes room for people, even if they're not queer. All those little kids, all those little boys painting their toenails, you know, whatever color they want. It's the kind of thing that, like, I would have been beaten up if I'd gone to school with nail mm. polish on any of my limbs as a, as a kid. Now it's really common. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's a tiny thing that's a big thing. That's the amazing thing. You know, being able to click around from Tales of the City to Pose to... Uh, I call it 19th century lesbian Downton Abbey. Gentleman Jack. Gentleman yes. Jack. <laughs> I have, like, might have caught an episode or two. <laughs> That's amazing, but Trump is still president. Mm-hmm. You know, like, those shows, in a way, are one of the clearest signs of how the culture is not with him, and the government we have really is, like, this illegitimate, undemocratic minority government, um, because... Nobody wants it. They don't even want it. They can't even live by their own rules. Hmm. Look how many wives Trump has had. So we're, I, in some ways I feel like I'm just waiting, as usual, for their bullshit to fall down. <laughs> um, but I've been waiting a long time. Mm-hmm. I was curious to hear you say just now that you thought that, that we were queering marriage. I actually just interviewed a... Um, sociologist uh, who did some on-the-ground sort of research in Massachusetts because that's where marriage had been legal the longest. And she found kind of a disheartening thing, which was that the people that she talked to had, in fact, disengaged from, like, direct, at least, queer activism um, after marriage was legal and marriage was part of their lives. You were an activist with ACT UP. Like, I wonder, do you worry about the future of radical queer activism or queers being, like, directly involved in political change as we move further into this sort of era of marriage equality? It's interesting to hear about that study. I mean, it's true that when I lived in Massachusetts, I did feel disappointed. (laughs) Generally. For that reason? (laughs) I was like... With gay marriage and legalized pot, I expected something a lot more like mm. Amsterdam. Yeah. yeah. But instead it was like a lot of guys looking for a third. Mm. Interesting. Um, huh. mm. And just high, really high. <laughs> and looking for a third. So, um, but that might be more about Massachusetts. <laughs> One of the things that didn't make into this interview with the sociologist, she said, you know, it's Massachusetts. It's like, that's its own thing. Like, that was like a line she said. So perhaps you're right. I remember right around that, in that first year, being in Niagara Falls for like the straightest wedding I've ever been. <laughs> and just like checking out for a little while from the wedding. It was a college friend of mine heading off to see Niagara Falls, seeing all these people getting married as you do like mm. at Niagara Falls. And there was this beautiful... Uh, black lesbian couple all dressed in white high butch femme uh, the butch had a top hat mm. oh wow um, nice. and they were there with their families who were everybody was so happy it was like the opposite of the ceremony I had just run away from which was like this 300 person <laughs> wedding at a golf course <laughs> 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 
Um, And I remember thinking, like, we'll make it ours like we always do, Mm -hmm. you know. And even, you know, married couples looking for a third, like, that's queering marriage, you know. Or hosting a sex party, or, or not. There's always been a very visible part of our community that is visible in part because they can't hide. Mm-hmm. Um, they could never hide. That's why they're always out in the forefront trying to change things for everyone because they're just trying to make room for themselves most of all. Um, but they're also, I'm not, it's not to say it's not, that it's not selfless in some way, but like when I was a little kid, I remember the boys were always like, why do you walk like a girl? Mm-hmm. You know, and I was like, what are you talking about? I just walk. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's true that my hips did this thing. <laughs> and, um, and then when I finally did drag, I was like, I am going to fucking walk. <laughs> <laughs> you were already halfway there. <laughs> the way that I was born to walk. There's always those of us who can't hide. And then there's those of us who can. And, you know, and those, those lives are, they've always been different. They're the ones who they benefit from uh, this kind of activism and it's incumbent on them actually to support uh, those who can't because right. they, they benefit from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in that vein of sort of animating sort of central issues that animate um, queer activism specifically in different decades, so in, this, in the New Republic piece that Christina mentioned, you, you know, a lot of your early activism centered on safe sex protocols, on the AIDS crisis, understandably, and I'm wondering if you see similar issues today that uh, activists, queer activists, um, are concentrating on or should be concentrating on. Is there any sort of, uh, obviously there's more than one, but are there sort of central animating um, issues that we should have an eye to? Well, the, AID, the AIDS crisis isn't over. Um, it's still technically ongoing. You know, West Virginia is now having this explosion in cases because they shut down their uh, their needle facility, right. mm-hmm. for example. Some of the issues that we face are exactly the same. Um, I also passed this beautiful poster on the way over here that was trying to educate people about zero virus uh, level, like how how you can't pass yeah. the virus on if your if your viral load is zero. Um, I. I think we should all be supporting the people who are trying to break the patent yeah. on PrEP because PrEP is one of the few victories for pleasure in our community and so much of our community is actually about being radicalized by pleasure uh, as much as we have ever focused on shared trauma mm. uh, we know ourselves through pleasure mm-hmm. we, that's like thank you um, PrEP is a drug that was created out of federal research money and it belongs to us all. Uh, As I said in that 2015 piece, uh, at the time, the thing that we were protesting about was like, please make drugs even though not that many people need it. Mm -hmm. Because at the time, it was shocking that there were 10,000 people who had died of AIDS. So many millions of people have the disease now. So many millions have died it's finally profitable enough for them to have a drug or five and none of them cure the disease. So here we are 
and capitalism, <laughs> our real enemy. You've also talked about how ACT UP, which you were involved in, was fighting for some of the same stuff, or, or what y'all were saying back then, you know, like, healthcare is a right, and we shouldn't let insurance companies be putting profits over people's lives. Like, that's part of the Democratic Party's platform now. Like, that kind of thing has become something that, you know, not just progressives or activists are saying. Do you see queer people as sort of like a canary in the coal mine in that, like, the oppression that befalls us could befall everyone else at a certain point and, and, you know, fighting for queer liberation is fighting for everyone else? Well, they tried to make us the canary in the coal mine, but a bunch of us got out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, governments try to test out their most repressive policies on marginalized groups, especially the most hated ones, because if the pub- population does not react to them being attacked, then they can move forward with taking rights away from the rest of the population. Um, like a legal basis is then set up and they, and they move forward. So that's why you always have to be watching for the way a government treats the least of us, mm. the least powerful of us, because that is what they're going to do to you next. Uh, at this point, like everyone who says that we're overreacting about Um, the kids at the border being put in camps is wrong because that's exactly what we said what would happen a year ago. It's even what Asian Americans were up in arms about. Now there are kids at Fort Sill, Mm -hmm. which was during the Japanese internment period, a Japanese camp, and before that it was what they called a boarding school for Native American children who were taken from their families and who were told they could not speak their language and had to dress in Christian ways and learn Western uh, educational techniques. So the, we see this place, and we see in Fort Sill, a history of our country's treatment of the least powerful mm-hmm. consistently. So that's why we all have to stick together, right? Yes, ACT UP does not get enough credit for saying healthcare is a right first. Mm-hmm. The point we were trying to make back then was this profiteering system, this, this way that they make money off of the sick is going to come for us all. Mm. And it has. Yeah. You know, how many of you here know someone who has gone through medical bankruptcy? Or how many of you have gone through it yourselves? You know, trying to discuss that with people overseas is always incredible. Wild, you know, they look at me like... <clears throat> And I don't really have good reasons. Looking forward a little bit, you write that an unprecedented intergenerational sharing of knowledge and stories that has really only just begun after these long decades of, has really just begun after these long decades of violence. That line really fascinated me because it's it's like we've only gotten just now to the point where we where there is enough you know, generations of queer people, especially because of those that we lost to the crisis, to start talking to each other. What are you hoping are the fruits of those kinds of conversations that we can start having? Oh, I think we're already seeing them. You know, I think uh, even just seeing um, Frank Bedard and Denez Smith hanging out, you know, or, um, or Edmund White living long enough to get the recognition he deserves mm. as a kind of world-changing writer. 
you know, not enough people know that he wrote, uh, he was a co-author for The Joy of Gay Sex, right? Did any of you, how many of you knew that here? Excellent. <laughs> so for a lot of us, we read Edmund White before we knew we were reading Edmund White. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because when you read that book, you didn't look to see the author. <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't. So those are, those are the kinds of things I'm talking about. Or even just me being able to like be a, a teacher at Dartmouth and have a gay Korean-American student come into my first-year writing class and tell me a story about you know, how his uh, football coach, after he came out at the assembly, like put a rainbow sticker on the door and lectured the whole team about wow. how they all had to accept him. And then I sat him down and I said, I was the first Korean-American gay author, and now it's your turn <laughs> to write something. And yeah. I just, I give that story to, I give that lecture to a lot of young queer uh, Korean-Americans because they don't believe it sometimes. Uh, they can't believe how few of us there are writing, and I'm still trying to agitate for more of us. So even me getting to do that now at the age of 51, that's amazing that's to me. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Across your this recent writing and, and the essays in the book as well, it's full of references to the beauty and importance of queers dancing um, together. And we actually we were just talking about this earlier, um, how important that is. What song do you want to dance to this weekend at Pride? <laughs> or after this show. At, right after this show, yeah. Let's see. Well, one of my old favorite dance classic hits is uh, Dominatrix Sleeps Tonight, which is a kind of like... <laughs> Got some fans <laughs> in the audience. Um, uh, I think it was possibly the only song they ever made. I was watching Pose and Electroabundance is working at the Hellfire Club. And I, I used to have a boyfriend who lived upstairs from there. And I was having all these like... Flashbacks. Well, I think on the note of dancing, that is all the time we have for this yeah. segment. But thank, thank you, you so much. much. Thank you. Wow, yes. Let's just have that for a second, yeah? Yeah? <laughs> Love it. Oh, that's tight. That stands the test of time. I like that the whip is actually like... Perfect. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, all right, Christina, what do we what do we, we have? We have two more guests on deck. They both star in Tales of the City, a new Netflix show. It's so good. Uh, it's a continuation of a beloved series of novels by Armistead Maupin, which were published from 1978 to 2014. The series revolves around a trans woman named Anna Madrigal, whose sprawling home in San Francisco is inhabited by a colorful chosen family of queer and queer adjacent renters. Two of those residents are cisgender lesbian Margot, played by New York-based actor and visual artist Mei Hong, and Margot's boyfriend, Jake, a recently transitioned trans guy, played by Garcia, a trans non-binary actor and activist. We are lucky to have both members of the couple, the on-screen couple, here with us tonight. Please welcome Mei Hong and Garcia. (laughs) 
Hi. Hi. Thank you guys so much for coming. So on the show, you guys, your characters are adjusting to some new sexual and gender dynamics in your relationship. Jake is exploring an attraction to men that's new to him. Margot is trying to figure out what that means for her identity and the fact that they pass as a straight couple now. I think we have a clip to play of one such scene. How do we get stuck with cake duty? Cause we're kind and generous. That's coded language for suckers, you know that, right? You okay? Did you hear what that lady said to me at the bakery? About our kids? Yeah. She thought we were straight, Jake. So she thought we were straight. You're excited. No, I'm not. You're passing and you're excited. What's wrong with that? I swear to God, if you started on your gender as a construct speech right now, I will throw this cake at you. Look, all I'm saying is we know we're queer. No one's taking that from us. A couple of queers walk down the street and no one knows it. Are they still queer? I was never good at algebra. You're so annoying. Also, gender's definitely a construct. (laughs) So this storyline is one of my favorites on the show because it really seems like the kind of plot that could only be told in such an authentic way by a queer writer's room, which Tales of the City had. What sorts of conversations did you guys have about what you wanted to bring to that story? I mean, I play myself. I just... I this don't. is you. Yeah, You're playing I, yourself no, on the I'm show. not joking. I think that was also one of the weird things when I uh, got the audition was just even the descri- the short description that you get. Uh, it was scary even down to like uh, Jake being about two, two and a half years into this transition. I had just made two years. And so wow. the description was like spiraling out these days because of his interest in men. And that was something that happened the summer prior. And so... <laughs> wow. I don't know. I, mean, I don't know what I brought. <laughs> yeah, we definitely had conversations about it as we were doing the scenes, yeah. and I I don't think we really had conversations prior, but definitely felt like some tension as I mean, as like it, you know, mm-hmm. life imitates you know art <laughs> as we were yeah. doing it, and and really having that discussion of like why though, and me being like, but it's legitimate. Why the and, breakup? Yeah. Like, what? And, actually having their conversation in real life and I think um, it's like beautiful the way that it does play out I don't know how much everyone have seen it's already such like not part of like a hetero narrative and Mm -hmm. so like Mm -hmm. just the way that it can play out and um, how they can still like love and care for each other so much Mm. did you recognize your character too one thing that I think is very interesting about Margot is she kind of places herself in um, a previous generation. She's like, oh, totally. I know nobody's into monogamy these days. Yeah. I know it's so uncool to identify as a lesbian. <laughs> like, is that something that you recognize in, in your community or, or conversations that you're witnessing? I mean, I've actually been thinking a lot lately about like compulsory heterosexuality and compulsory monogamy, and I'm like not, I don't side with Margot. <laughs> <laughs> I don't agree with her, <laughs> but um, just I think in reading the character's description and how much what resonated with me is how much she is just a part of this family. And there's actually no conversation about her being Asian American or Korean American. Mm-hmm. And as powerful as I do think it is to have that as part of a narrative and a story, there's something so natural just like how no one's really talking about 
being queer necessarily. Mm -hmm. It's just like in it's Part life, of the and yeah. so that's something that I definitely felt resonated with me. Where I don't feel like I need to be discussing that all the time, or at least the people that are in my life. Yeah, and that's what drew me to it. One thing I think that is so interesting about the show is like it almost feels like a mini history lesson with the way that there's always so much um, uh, historical events and conversations that are, you know, maybe they're not the central plot points, but they're happening around the show's edges, specifically with the show taking place in San Francisco. And so I'm wondering why you think that's important to have that sort of history sort of woven into the story and or um, what new things did you learn uh, about queer history, about San Francisco's own special place in queer history while you were producing the show? I had no idea about Compton's riots, and that was something that I just, I mean, I had the privilege of sitting in on episode eight, um, the flashback episode for those who haven't seen it. And that was just, it was overwhelming and a little upsetting because it's, because you want to know about those things and, and it's, I mean, it's crucial, right, for queer people to know that whatever they're going through now, and I, I think more so like for the younger generations, um, that probably feel immensely alone in, in so many ways. It's good to know that like thousands of people have felt this way mm -hmm. centuries before we were even alive. Mm -hmm. Learning about tales was, was, was fun because it was like, cool, it's been here, people have been doing this. Uh, authors like Armis and Maupin have been writing just like these natural, like these queer people just living, just mm -hmm. existing as is. And, and it's not, not like, like a coming out story or like right, an I got right. homophobe it's story. It's just people living in a, like in a co-op, you mm -hmm. know, and just right. existing and, and accepting one another for exactly who they are. And bringing that into the now is, is nice, right? Because I think a lot of what's like in a way trending, but has always um, is safe spaces and the idea of like, queers getting together and, and, and being able to take up space, specifically like queer people of color, trans people, and and that's also comforting. And so, I don't know, I think it also just reinforces that, that like, I, I find extreme comfort in not being the first. Mm. Like, and I think that that's always like a title, like the first person ever, like whatever, you, every time you hear the first, I'm like, that's not true because I'm sure someone in history has done like as yeah. long as humans have existed, someone else has done this, they just weren't <laughs> recognized. I'd be interested to hear if the roles you played, especially yours, Garcia, since you were just saying that the role was you, did it teach you anything about your identity or relationships or, or give you space to explore that in a new way at all? Maybe it did. Uh, not directly, maybe uh, in all the ways indirectly. Uh, meeting uh, Thomas Page McBee is one of the, the writers on the show, is also a trans man, and I don't think I had a trans male as a friend until him. Wow. Uh, and then him also introducing me to other uh, trans masculine people and and going to re-speech for the first time was just, and we hung out and I, and like no one was there. So I think that like slipped my shirt off. I was like, cool, no one can like, yeah. and that's like one of the rare moments that I think mm. queer folks specifically like non-binary, gender non-conforming, like people who whose bodies don't fit naturally in those spaces where other like cis people fit because it was created for them right and so just being at the beach is is a privilege sometimes um anyway i'm saying all that because i don't think i learned a lot until until after 
tales came out a few weeks ago because of the overload of messages from from people all over the world and mm. sorry i do this all the time um i just immediately just didn't feel alone anymore because yeah. there's people in in, in france and in taiwan and, and and all you know the the fact that netflix is global is just amazing because you have people and you just don't you don't feel alone anymore like you and like not that i ever was because I, I have family i have people around me but it's just immensely comforting that like people could relate to jake and be like yo this is like exactly i'm like cool that me too because like and then mm. you don't feel like it's just immediate you know that you're not the only one going through it and you i knew i wasn't but it's just that reassurance of it mm-hmm. um, that also makes yeah. me think about the importance of casting trans and non-binary people mm-hmm. in trans and non-binary roles and and cis roles too but you know the idea of seeing somebody like you playing the role that is like you is really important <laughs> so the episode that we're doing today is about legacies um, as we've mentioned and we were wondering, just in your personal lives, um, if there are any queer mentors or sort of cultural touchstones that you look at as legacies for your own lives, like as you go through the world. Not necessarily for the show, but just as, just as you're, you are yourselves. I grew up in New York City, and I feel like I had the privilege of being in spaces or going to schools that felt really safe Mm -hmm. and kind of like what I said earlier about not having to almost speak about it and like I went to LaGuardia which is like an art and performing arts high school and then I ended up going to you know an art school for college as well and it's it's like such an accepting space that I, I feel like weirdly there there were like I sort of had blinders to like how hard it is for most people in the country and the world just you know it's like bubble and we're still in a bubble living here um but I guess I mean I was trying to think of like one specific person but I I think it is sort of like the photos that we're looking at are like all of my friends that are being their best selves and living their truths Mm. and being out and about and representing the queer community in in a benign way and in, in a way of like not screaming about it just being alive so and kind and wonderful as as good as they can be so i mean they are truly my inspiration and yeah. really meditating on that a lot to piggyback off of that um I was, yeah i was thinking that too because i'm like who are queer heroes i don't I mean, I remember being asked in high school as a freshman, it was like, who's your hero? And I was like, I don't have any, yo. Like, I don't know why. I don't know if that was just me being me. But, <laughs> but my, my friends, so I'm like from the south side of Chicago, and like that's predominantly the hood is where I grew up. And so growing up, I, I realized that just existing as a queer person, a queer person of color, like every day that I choose to wake up, and live my life is 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 resistance it's mm-hmm. it's 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 a radical form of of being right and especially if you're like you're open and visibly queer i'm envisioning all of my friends who are like visibly queer and they're also not like shouting about it but like that alone just like i have a friend soul who who's who's in the process of transitioning into, uh, into a woman and so um and when we're hanging out together, it's scary, right? Because I'm always like ready to fight, right? Mm-hmm. Just like, yo, don't like, you know, because 
because I have a privilege and, and I realize that like appearing as a, as a cis male um, and, and not like if no one, if we're in a space that no one knows me, I, I am, I am quote unquote safe, but, but soul is not. And mm. so I'm, I'm ready then to, to always be. And there's something I guess sad about that because like, why do black people are always like on their guard? And so when I see soul just living and, and not being this, I don't know, on their guard, they're, mm. I admire that. And then, and I, I want to emulate that and I, I want to just be able to like just be yeah that's beautiful um, I would say the overarching theme of Tales of the City is chosen family the show is a beautiful depiction of an intergenerational chosen family what does that mean for you two in your own lives or what did the show teach you about that concept it made me realize that I don't really have that in my huh. real life I mean, love my parents, but, you know, it's just a lot. Being an immigrant and, like, I immigrated here when I was six with my parents and just there was so much division and, like, seeing seeing Chosen Family and, um, I mean, especially in episode four, I, that conversation at the dinner party uh, for anyone that hasn't seen brutal. it. Yeah, June yeah. actually, um, June who introduced us wrote a piece about that scene and um, yeah. it's a great scene where you know many generations of, or two generations of people come together to talk about sort of the divisions in the way you know people conceive of queer family or queer communities and you know there's a, some language that gets thrown around that is right. offensive and. Yeah, it's that scene I think is like the strongest and most it's just such a powerful scene in the series and it's like encapsulates like so much of mm -hmm. what is being done with tales <laughs> so asian to be like respect your elders <laughs> <laughs> think of what they've done for you <laughs> but it's but def just um like the sacrifice and how much work has been done for us to all live our lives and to be able to see that in like a show that's also warm and also sexy and also you know and it's wild yeah yeah and I think too the the beautiful part about about chosen family is that for me it's always been like the choice to love like mm. right because I'm choosing you so I'm choosing to not uh, only accept you for all who you are but like also love you for it and and unconditionally and I think I will always practice and preach, like set your boundaries with your biological family because blood doesn't mean anything, uh, at least to me, because I can't ever, I think as a child, get my mind around that because just because you're my aunt or my uncle, I, that doesn't mean I have to automatically respect you. I mean, I was raised that way. I was, uh, respect your elders as well. But as I got older, like someone telling me they love me, but also saying some homophobic shit across this table was like, mm -hmm. those two don't, mm -hmm. those they don't go together, it, it, it doesn't. Growing up, I think it was 16, 17 when I started theater, uh, an old mentor like found me at a train station, like introduced me to theater and literally a train station like on the corner was like, do you wanna come with me? And I went with this strange man. Um, wow. And so, and, and through theater, I found my chosen family, like people that were accepting me for all of, just me, and there were no questions. and or side eyes or, or anything. It was just, oh, cool. Like, and, and that's what it was. And, and so, yeah, I think Chosen Family is choosing to love you. I think that's all the time we have. Thank you both so much. Oh, I really God. appreciate it.
Brandon, do you want to introduce our final segment? Uh, I can't believe you're almost over. Um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, as we mentioned at the top of the show, we're going to do an audience pride and provocation. So just to recap, we'd love for you to throw something at us, not physically, you know, something you've read, something you've heard. Um, an issue, know, some, a question. Yeah, yeah. You know, any of those. Specifically, we'd love it to be related to Pride or Stonewall, and then we will sort of mull over and talk about um, whether this is a Pride, a provocation, or perhaps both, because sometimes Whoa. we do that as well. <laughs> no strict binaries here. The NYPD police commissioner just issued an apology. Apparently, was individual decision on his part for the Stonewall riots. Right. Yeah. And uh, I'm wondering what you all think about that. Ooh. What do we think about that? This Christina, be- I know what you think about it because I edited <laughs> your piece about it. Yeah, this it. would be cheating for me because I did write a post about it. So I want you guys to go first. Can I be like indifferent? I feel like it's... No, I, I guess I'm provoked by it uh, because, because it, it's meaningless like at this point. It doesn't, it doesn't actually address any of the situation that happened there. And in fact, it sort of obfuscates all of the police violence uh, that happens against members of our, of our community now, um, especially trans women of color. So, you know, I'd much rather him have given a speech about that mm. and, you know, making policy changes around that or whatever, rather than apologizing for a raid that happened under laws that don't exist anymore 50 years ago. I don't think it's relevant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Seems like PR. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think you can say that this is you know, important, significant in some way, and also hold the opinion that, yeah, like you were just saying, Brian, like you would like to see more, because I think one of the ways that we sort of cop out of actually being responsible human beings is just leaving things in the past instead of carrying the same um, discrimination uh, and prejudices that, you know, still afflict us today. That would have been an opportunity to say like, yes, we apologize for this, and at the same time, uh, we realize that marginalization of queer people, especially queer people of color, still happens today. To me, that would have been a more thoughtful, more genuine um, sort of response. I think just apologizing for something, you know, on the eve of like pride. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, special seems, Pride Month promotional. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it just seems a little too easy. Uh, well, I'm proud of it, you guys. <laughs> um, yeah, there were a couple things that irked me about that. One, like, that guy wasn't at Stonewall. Right. Two, like you said, Brian, the laws that, that they were prosecuting people under and arresting people for, like, not wearing three items of clothing mm-hmm. that matched your, their your birth, gender, sex, or yeah, whatever, yeah, don't exist anymore. But more importantly, the reason why we commemorate Stonewall is not because of specific things that happened at Stonewall only. It's because of what it represented, which was an uprising that stemmed from a pattern of behavior that did not end with Stonewall. Um, So I think focusing on Stonewall so specifically, like it's not anything the police did that night that was outrageously bad. By all accounts, it that stuff happened all the time. Yeah. yeah. So that's my answer. I'm provoked. I think all month we've all seen so many stores and corporations supporting Pride and displaying the rainbow colors on their storefronts, which is you know, very affirming and great to see all those colors. Um, on the way here, I also saw a bank that said something like, this bank, brand name, supports Pride. And over the brand name, there were a whole bunch of stickers that said, lesbians revolt. Wow. And then <laughs> supports Pride. <laughs> and so... 
I'm wondering if you all think that the that corporation supporting pride is a pride or provocation because I know on one hand it's like representation, it's great that we're being affirmed. On the other hand, it's just playing into the capitalistic matrix. I think it was very kind of you to anonymize that bank. Yes. <laughs> so in case they want to sponsor us later, yeah, like that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's gotten like weird this year, the, the yeah. corporate pride stuff. I don't know if I'm like anti-capitalist to the extent that like some, you know, friends I have are, for example, who just like hate the idea of corporations like saying anything. I'm not, I'm not sure that I'm there, but it has gotten to a point in the last couple of years and especially this year, I feel like where it's just like empty signifiers. Like it's so busy and, and like bizarrely so. Like what does it mean for a lesbian to be revolting at that bank, but <laughs> yeah. also celebrating pride? I mean, you know, there are some corporations that I think try to do it well where they give the money or percentage of the proceeds from that month to like a charity or whatever. That's good, but um, overall, it doesn't it doesn't excite me very much now. Yeah, I mean, but you can't put a price or a percentage of proceeds on the general goodwill from queer people. Yeah, and I always think about like who do those benefits redound to? It's the straight people who are overwhelmingly running mm. these corporations. So I don't think the benefits are generally coming back to queer people. Although I am on record as really liking the Chipotle float in the DC Pride Parade. <laughs> A, they gave out free burrito coupons that said homo estas. Oh, nice. B, they had somebody riding a bucking bronco slash burrito. <laughs> and C, it looked like there were a ton of peop queer people actually right. marching with the Chipotle right. float. So I'll give Chipotle like a halfway of a pass. I would say generally it provokes me though because I thinking five steps down who actually gets the benefits of mm. that. Like straight people are profiting off of our identities and actually history of oppression because that's what pride, pride is, is about. about right. mm, mm. Brandon? Um, yeah, so I'll say that I moved to DC, I live in DC in fall 2016. And I'm from South Carolina, and so the first time I walked down 14th Street um, and saw all the different pride and rainbow flags and things in the window, I, I cried when I got to work because I yeah. was from somewhere where like I never had seen that before. And still doesn't probably have much of it, yeah. Yeah, at I'm all. I'm from there. Um, like, you'd have to like go downtown in Columbia yeah. or something like that yeah, to yeah. see anything like that. It's nice to have those sort of... Uh, Tearing up a little bit. It's nice to have those sort of those sorts of um, I guess like obvious, visible, like ways to acknowledge people. But then, what does acknowledgement mean without any sort of follow up? Mm. Um, and so, beyond just like changing your Twitter, you know, the company logo on Twitter to a pride flag or something, are you helping your employees who are queer have access to the same benefits, healthcare benefits, as everybody else? Um, I think there are visible and also more deeply meaningful ways to, um, or equally de uh, meaningful ways to actually support queer communities than just, you know, having a float or, you know, putting out a rainbow sign. Um, and then, you know, July 1st, it'll be gone. These, these have all been very rich, thought-provoking <laughs> questions about pride, which I think we all need to think about and talk about. My provocation is um, what you all think about queer people having to go to work the Friday and Monday uh, bookend of Pride, uh, because I'm I'm finding myself uh, on the like you know 15th year of going to Pride, uh, just feeling very offended that I am asked to show up to work uh, tomorrow and Monday. Your thoughts, please. I think it's a hate crime. <laughs> yeah. 
we shouldn't be forced to do that. And I'm at a work event right now. Yeah. Yeah. I took those days off because like, I, yeah, like I just, I can't, I've, I've never done that before, but this year I was just like, g- given the, the momentousness of whatever, I, I felt like I needed it. I need to like feel it. I need like, you know. I, I had yeah. the fun experience this year of having to go right from, so our dyke march was on a Friday. I had to go right from work to the dyke march because <laughs> it was only like two blocks away from the Slate office. And I was like, okay, how do I change into my Dyke March outfit without anybody at work seeing me in that outfit, but also not like taking off a bunch of clothes on the sidewalk because that would be attracting a lot of unwanted attention. <laughs> so I changed in the stairwell in the lobby of our building. <laughs> nice. nice. And I looked damn cute. <laughs> so what do we make of the fact that pride in New York City is world pride? Mm. And are we okay with the pseudo-gay empire imperialist kind of aspirations of that? And if we are, what kind of queer politics should quote-unquote we espouse at Pride? Ooh. Oh my god, what a question. That's going to be the entire next episode we do, probably. Yeah. It's not always in New York, right? No, it moves. It's every two years. It was in Madrid last, hmm. uh, two years ago, I think. I, I find the world Pride idea very mysterious i think i think it's not really clear who runs it and why i think it is going to mean in a different sense of meaning that uh the city is going to be a clusterfuck this weekend because there's so many people here and we can't drink on the streets and so there's you know it's just the city is not built for this so that's going to be a mess imperialism, homonationalism. I think about the colonial laws that have been put in yeah. place in some countries, like the, the homophobic and mm-hmm. transphobic laws like were not created by indigenous populations in, in these countries. A lot of times they were imposed by colonial mm-hmm. regimes. Um, and, you know, we've been seeing some movement in some countries. Like, I think about that too, like yeah. where world pride is has a lot to do with where, um, like what political environment can support an influx of... I don't know, hundreds of thousands, millions of queers. I also wonder whether it will lead to a greater homogenization of queer culture based on who can afford to attend. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, who can afford to attend to travel internationally to any World Pride event? What would be interesting is if there was some maybe deeper attempt to, I think, actually zoom in on regions and countries where we can't just go to a World Pride Festival like a few blocks away or something. Um, And I think if you're gonna call yourself World Pride, then it seems like there is some degree of responsibility to actually put this in a context beyond just the city that it's in, especially when it's these very, you know, these sort of traditional urban queer capitals, for lack of a better word. Right. There's so many events going on that I think that we can afford to at least have some degree of, but what does pride mean for people who are not here or for people who cannot travel here or people who can't celebrate in the same way that we are showing that you celebrate pride. Um, I think there are a lot of different ways to make this uh, a richer sort of celebration. On that note, should we have a little toast? Yeah, let's have a toast. We wanted to propose a little toast. It's a special night, special weekend. 50 years ago, tomorrow, a rowdy, pissed off group of street kids, dykes, faggots, fairies, gender outlaws, other miraculous creatures of various sorts did a miraculous thing. And it has a lot to do with why we're here tonight. So we thought we'd do a toast. Brandon, do you want to start us off? I will. To the riots of the past, may we remember our queer ancestors who resisted in ways of big and small in ballrooms and courtrooms so that queers today could continue on the path to liberation. Woo! 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 Woo!
to the riots of the present, may they be unbought, uncompromising, and full of dancing, and may we embrace our internal conflicts as opportunities for learning and growth. And to the riots of the future, may we promise to carry with us the legacy of Stonewall and the certainty that queers are a fierce people who have had and will always have the power of alchemy, of transforming oppression into art, sorrow into beauty, and when the situation calls for it, a shitty dive bar into a launch pad for revolution. Cheers. So that's it for our show. I want to thank Joe's Pub for hosting this intimate salon. It's so beautiful. Thank you to Faith Smith and Britt Pulley for making this all happen. Our producer, who's amazing, is Daniel Schrader. June Thomas is the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. And she's also the first brick in our arsenal. For people listening, please send us your feedback and your love notes to outwardpodcast at slate.com or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Slate Outward. And thank you all for giving us something cute to look at. <laughs>